Welcome to the Oh My God podcast, season two, with your co-hosts, Zelda Lebowitz and Hannah Rachel Cohen Portnoy. In season one, the podcast aimed to talk about success in the face of failure, modern Judaism, and real life. Season two will deliver the same message, but even more potently. Zelda and Hannah Rachel have individually and collectively been challenged by the Jewish system they grew up in. Through their evolution, through their questions, failures, mistakes, and heartbreaks, they've begun to untangle much of what was keeping them in survival mode so they could truly be set free to thrive. This is what they'll dissect each week with you, the Jewish journey, real, raw, and vulnerable. Because that is the only thing that can truly change lives and maybe even save them. You're only one episode away from being more honest with yourself. I want to just officially uh, welcome you to the Oh My God podcast, Avital. Thank you for being here. I'm so excited to be here. I'm Zelda, as you know, and this is Hannah Rachel, my co-host. Hi. Hi. It's so nice to formally meet you. Likewise, nice to meet you. Thanks for having me on. This is going to be fun. Yeah, yeah I know. I'm really excited to, for, to share, you know, your, to have you share your uh, wisdom and your story and a little bit of your energy with our audience. I think it's so necessary and it just, you know, you don't meet a lot of people at all. I, I've, and I've met a lot of women specifically, like through together, we've met a lot of women through the Shaitel world and, you know, just so many people came through our door, but we've, I would say that I've really never met a firm Orthodox journalist and Rebbitson, you know, at the same time, like you, you really do have a lot of, a lot of hats and it's amazing, really powerful hats. Thank you. Wow. That's, that's really phenomenal. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what your background is and where you, you know, where you come from and what you do today. Sure. Um, so where I come from, I always start with where I come from because that's a big part of who I am today and hopefully who I will be one day. Um, I come from a family of Bali Chuba. My parents became religious as I was growing up. Um, they're immigrants from the Soviet Union. So I sort of always had this different perspective on the universe, on religion, on community life, um, just being a child of immigrants in a very sort of classical American Orthodox, modern Orthodox community. Um, I was always a writer since I learned how to write. I always wanted to be a writer, literally. Like when I was seven years old, I wrote my first novel. Um, I was really obsessed. Uh, I was always an obsessive reader. My parents, because I think a lot of my background, literature was a very big part of my upbringing. Uh, I was expected to read Tolstoy by the age of 12. Uh, and that's really how my parents raised me. Like we didn't get toys as gifts, we only got books. That was like real upbringing that we got. Um, so fast forward to today, um, more or less, well, I'll do a little bit, not today, but maybe 10 years ago. Um, when I was in college, I started basically writing for big outlets on Jewish community on religion, on women's experiences, et cetera. When I was first, when I was around 20 years old, I had like my big first viral article back when things went viral. Um, I wrote about SNES and sort of the way I think it's not taught properly in girls' schools. And that really kind of catapulted me into uh, a writing career, essentially writing on the Orthodox community, on my experiences and my perspectives on various topics. Mm. Wow. Wow. Oh, so that was when I was around 20. Uh, I mean, I can go into detail with like how this all my crazy combination of Rebbitson and journalist happened. Um, but essentially, when I was around 
um, 22, my husband and I, do you want me to, like, how much detail do you want me to go into yeah, here? Well, a little bit, a little bit, like a, it's, you're doing perfect. Like a general idea until like sort of until today, and then we'll go into the details. Okay, sure. So I will tell you, I mean, it's, it's, it's very much part of my life story. And it's, I think a question that lives to this day for me um, and for my husband. Long story short, uh, my husband and I were introduced when we were 20 years old, sort of classical shidduch, uh, you know, two couple friends thought up the idea. Um, he was learning in Lake Yeshiva, and I was finishing Stern and I was sort of going on this like very impassioned journalistic track and he was determined to become a rabbi. Um, and essentially after a number of dates, we really liked each other. Uh, he was also coming from a Russian speaking background. He grew up in Moscow. His father is the chief rabbi of Moscow. Um, we really connected on a lot of things and one of them being really passionate about the Jewish community. After a number of dates, he said, listen, I really like you, but we're never getting married. This is never gonna happen because you're a feminist and you're a journalist and you're out there and I'm gonna be a rabbi and I have to play defense and you're playing offense. You're attacking the establishment. I am the establishment. This can never work out. Wow. And, um, and he broke up with me. He said, like, I'm sorry, it's just not happening. I was totally devastated because I was like, this is my, this is my guy, this is my person. Yeah. Um, and then he said to me, just make, do, you know, make me one promise, never write about me, like about us dating. And I was a little bit writing about my dating experience at the time, I was 21. <laughs> um, I was like, whatever, I'm never seeing you again. So um, I ended up writing an essay anyways. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote an essay about what it's like to be a young religious woman sort of juggling modernity and tradition and wanting both, desperately wanting both. And in one part, I had this part about basically men being scared of strong religious women. And I had this line that was like, I knew a guy like this once before. Uh, maybe he was scared because he saw, th saw something restless in my eyes, uh, something along those lines. And it was a whole paragraph about him and his whole family and all his friends, everyone knew that we had gone out. My friends, everyone knew that I was talking about Benji Goldschmidt. And, um, and the essay landed in the New York Times. Wow. I was 21 and it was my first time published in a big publication. It was professionally for me, like a really big step, of course. Um, and yeah, that was, that was when I, that was how I got back at him, so to speak. Um, and then at that point you guys started going out again? You reached out? Nope, nope. We were dating other people. A year later, I happened to have to go to Moscow um, for a reporting trip actually, uh, for Tablet Magazine. I went to report on the Rebbe's Library and that was, now it's in the Museum of Tolerance in the Jewish Museum in Moscow. At the time, it was at the center of a major legal dispute between the Russian government and the American government. So I was sent to report on the story, like what's really going on there. It was my first time in Russia. I speak fluent Russian, but I had never been there before. And I didn't know a soul. And I was writing about Chabad, so I couldn't really stay by Chabad because it would be a conflict of interest. Benji's sister, I knew from Stern, and she was like, oh, just stay by my parents. And I was like, I can't really stay by your, I don't know, it's weird. I dated your brother, but it was a year later and I was like, I'm never, it's fine. Like we're dating other people, we're marrying other people, nothing's gonna happen. So I stayed there for a Shabbos and I basically, his parents liked me a lot. And they called him up after Shabbat and gave him a hard time saying you should have married her. And then, but nothing happened. And then another year passed by. Wow. <laughs> and 
that after two years, after the first time we went out, we were at, both at a conference and um, he was speaking there and I was reporting and we ended up talking in the hotel lobby there all night. And he ended up writing an email to me saying, uh, he had the quote from my article, maybe he was scared because he saw something vessels in her eyes. Oh, it's uh, like a movie. <laughs> we want to discuss. And uh, we went out again and got engaged. So the point why I tell this story, um, it's cute, obviously. And the New York Times actually wrote about our whole love story after that. Um, they came, they did like a big vows article in the style section about our wedding. But the reason I tell it is not just because it's cute, but because it really gets at sort of the struggle that I as a writer feel. Um, and also the sort of bigger tension of being both a journalist and a Robinson. Uh, I think there's more harmony than tension, but there's certainly also tension. Mm -hmm. For sure. Definitely. For sure. Wow, that's love, incredible love story. And I also love that you were, you know, like he, he basically was saying that like, no, this is not going to work. And it, it wasn't like you were trying to get him to see you. Like you were just continuing living on your life. living your life. You know, you knew your power, you knew your worth. You weren't like, okay, I will, uh, I won't talk about feminism or I won't, you know, which a lot of women struggle with really Belittling keeping to their convictions yes. and their truth because the overpowering fear of rejection is just so much more pressing. Yeah, I was definitely, I knew I could not change myself. That's number one, for sure. The funny thing is you say about not talking about feminism. And actually we were just talking about it recently and laughing about it. The second time we went out, I remember the second round at some point on one date, he turns to me and he's like, Avital, we really need to talk about the women's issue. <laughs> Like, where do you stand? Do you believe in women rabbis? Do you, like, where do you stand on this stuff? And I was like, we're not talking about it. And he's like, no, no, we need to discuss it. I need to hear from you where you are in the feminist stuff. And I was like, we're not talking about it. And for four months we dated and then we got engaged. We never spoke about it once because, and my whole thing was that like, it's not gonna actual, it's not gonna make an actual difference in our lives. I love that. Well, you know, he, uh, he saw that I was, not a weak personality. I mean, I'm, I'm nice. I'm not like a really like an overbearing personality, but he understood that I, I have my convictions, that I have a career that I want to pursue, that I'm not afraid to be vocal when I, when it's time for me to be vocal. He saw all of that in me and he still liked me. He still wanted to be with me. So I understood that, you know, he wasn't going to be a, like, a controlling husband or something, but in terms of, you know, feminism abstractly, I just felt like it's okay if we have different different opinions on this. Like that's fine. And, and how, how is that today? How is that? Is it? Did you feel the same today? Definitely. I mean, I think we've both changed. I, I don't know if mellowed out is the right word because I think we, we're so passionate, you know, about our ideas. But certainly, I feel he has seen things. He sees things now from a different perspective. Yeah. Um, because just being married to me. So like, and I think that's part of the role of any Rebbitzin, by the way, is to really elevate women's voices in our community so that the Rabbanim see clearly what 50% of our community experiences or struggles with, right? So an example of this would be that early when we got married, the shul that he was serving as a rabbi in, um, I, I, I told him, listen, I think this, the women's balcony is really like not going to work for the next generation just young women don't want to be sitting up there they don't want to be spectators they want to be participants and however we can do that halachically let's try to find a way i was i was 
I mean, it, there was no real way of changing it in that shul. It was a very old school shul. But I felt I wanted him to understand that it's a real struggle to sit on the balcony for many young women. Forget about me. Many women were telling me they really did not like it. And he was sort of like dismissing it. Like, what do you mean? You see everything from there. It's fine. I was like, no. And then I was like, wait a minute. Have you ever gone upstairs? He was like, no. I've never, he had never gone upstairs to the, to wow. the women's thing. Wow. I want you to go upstairs and sit in my seat. Go upstairs. And now imagine you're wearing four inch heels and you're holding a baby on your hip or you're struggling to walk because you had a knee surgery recently, right? I mean, you, and I, like, I force him to, to, you know, to literally walk in my shoes almost. Um, That's a beautiful way of getting somebody to understand is like saying, take, take yourself out of your position for a minute and put yourself in my shoes, you know, but from a place of love and compassion, and you're just trying to draw him in so that he understands. That's such a beautiful way to explain, you know, an issue that really makes people uncomfortable. Yeah. I think, I think so many of the problems in our communities are derived from a lack of empathy because, and specifically around gender, for sure, you know, it's very hard for men to understand female experiences in, in the from community because we lead very set, we lead very segregated lives, right? Women's experiences and men's experiences are by design extremely different. And many of us may be okay with the difference. Many of us may be okay with the segregation. I think the problem is when you have leadership only on one side of the machitza, they can't really fully empathize with the other side of their constituency. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's also so rare for, uh, not so much in Chabad, because I feel like the, yeah. really, our system and the Rebbe really raised us to be leaders. leaders in our own right and not just hand, you know not just a helping hand to the rabbi but to lead her own groups and to to lead to lead the community in her own way but i also think that a lot of the issues definitely come from 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 a lack of empathy from really trying to like from really putting an interest in like seeing the pain or seeing the issue but i think that the reason why there's a lack of empathy is it boils down from my perspective, from real fear. Like there's just so much fear that there's gonna be assimilation, there's gonna be mixed dancing, there's gonna be just so much issues that they, they're so even scared to even like open that conversation. And if I may, Zelda, I wanna take the next step. I think you're right, it comes from fear. I don't think it just comes from fear of assimilation and the secular world. I think there's a fear of displacement. And I've literally personally seen that as a Robinson where there have been rabbis that I've you know, interacted with who have literally been afraid to call me Rebbitzin because they felt that it would give me power. Wow. Like a title, right? Even though I don't need that. Like I mamish don't need that. I have a very big life outside of my quote unquote Rebbitzin hat. But when I no noticed that, that there was like, you know, there was one older rabbi who literally refused to call me Rebbitzin because he said, there's no such thing as a Rebbitzin in Manhattan. You can't do, like, she can't be that. You know, and it was because there was this fear of, of, of giving that power of giving title to a woman, not just any woman, but a woman who could maybe do the job well, right? But um, I, I think there's like a big, I, I feel like it comes a lot, I feel like it comes from a place of misunderstanding as well. And mm -hmm. I think that when I think about Tyra in, in, in its wholeness, yeah. it's all about humility. I mean, they think that we say Maisha Rabbeinu was like, he's like the most humble man, you know what I mean? And I think when there's a power struggle, it's really, like sacrilegious it has nothing to but do with religion and tyrant right. really has to do with an imbalance an internal imbalance emotional imbalance you know what i mean so 
Yeah, absolutely. Korah right. is yeah. the place. Yeah, of course not. Right. It's not Judaism. It's so. not. And it's not. And, and I think, you know, the way I see it, like the moment we overcome that power, that ego, that, that hunger for that sort of unchecked power, right? I think that that's really, that's part of the Google process, really, is that ability to, to see the other, to have that sort of empathy, to make room for all types of leadership at the table. Right. Definitely. 100%. And to see that connection. I'm really interested also to understand, because you said that your parents became religious as you were growing up. Um, And so how was that journey for you? How old were you when they became religious? It was such a slow and therefore healthy journey. You know, I find a lot of Balichu would just go like cold turkey overnight. It creates a lot of issues. My parents became observant very slowly over the years. Um, They sent us to day school. I'm sorry, you're hearing my baby in the background. So uh, so it was a very slow, uh, consistent journey, I would say. They started keeping Shabbos, I want to say I was like five or six years old. I remember the switch. You were young. I was young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure, I was young. I remember our first sukkah we built when I was eight years old. That was like a very, very big celebration. Like, wow, we have our own sukkah. Uh, You don't have to just go to the shul. We have our own in our backyard. Um, You know, and, and little things like I... I was, I'm the oldest of four girls and they sent me to day school and I would learn, I would basically learn halacha, but also social etiquette and then hug him and everything else involved in the firm community. And I would come home with it. So I remember there was like one moment where I said, you know, we're not like, we don't really flip. We're, we're not supposed to flip a switch on Shabbos or, um, we're teaching your parents. Yeah. I was teaching my parents or, you know, we don't rip toilet paper or, you know, and then there was like that next step. Okay. Look, we're keeping halacha, but now like, how do we elevate? So there was, I remember the moment when I said, we really should use a tablecloth on Shabbos. You know, we went, we went to that, you know, next step of, of, of hit or mitzvah. Um, wow. so I remember very vividly some of those moments. Um, I don't think, cause I was like a particularly special child that was, I think I was blessed with amazing teachers who made Judaism really exciting and warm and enticing. Um, and yeah, it was, a, it was a big, it was, it was a beautiful way to grow up in a way that it was, it felt very intentional. So you mm. felt personally connected to that spiritual journey? Very much. I feel like I, I'm in this weird middle place where half Baal Tshuva, half from, from birth. Like I always went to day school. I always, you know, I was in the system, but at the same time, it always did still feel like a choice because I remember being involved in my parents' growth. Wow. That's so powerful. And that's something that a lot of people are missing. Sounds like the light of the Baal like that, that, that light bulb experience growing up through the from system, which actually makes everything so much more exciting and really enjoyable. Also, there's so much pride when it's choice, you know, most, you know, I think pride actually comes from choice. Like no one, no, you're proud when you're putting in the work, when you're doing, you're proud of your own achievements. You're proud of your own ideas. But when someone is telling you how to do it, which the reality is that's a lot of the Orthodox community. A lot of the Orthodox community is not by choice, but it's important to empower ourselves by re- realizing as, at least as, a, as an adult, that it is a choice, you know? It is a choice. And, you know, I think people always ask me like, what were you thinking marrying a rabbi? What were you thinking? Like you chose to be a rabbi's wife? What were you thinking? Um, I, like people always say, you know, did you know what you were getting into? Because it is a really crazy lifestyle. But I feel like a lot of my what drove me to this was 
I had a certain rosy eyes, very idealistic. Um, I think in a positive way, I really wanted to, to help. I wanted to build, I wanted to, you know, pass on whatever I could to other people who are searching or, you know, are trying to find meaning in life. Could you share with our audience an experience that you've had that really opened your eyes to Hashem to see like the gift that you have, about, you know, being a Rebetzin or the gift that you have as to, you know, role as a mom or just anything really? You know, when you asked, when I saw that you wanted to discuss this, I was like amazed. That's such a great question. Um, and so positive. Um, I'll be honest. I think wherever I've seen Yad Hashem, wherever I've seen the hand of Hashem, um, I definitely see it in terms of something as quote unquote small and personal as, you know, my marriage. Like we were not meant to be together, but we were meant to be together. And it was all about timing. And it was like this million different factors had to like, all converge exactly in the right way that it worked out, you know? Um, and I think in terms of being in my rabbits in life, um, but I also look at it as a journalist because I'm a storyteller by nature. It's, my husband and I went through a very difficult challenge um, in the last year. Um, there was a big, there was essentially, he was, working for 10 years as an assistant rabbi at a prominent synagogue in Manhattan in the Upper East Side, very successful and beloved um, and, and popular. Um, and the senior rabbi um, who was in his 90s decided to throw him out like this overnight. Um, this happened in October. And this was very traumatizing for us as a family. I was pregnant. Um, we suddenly had like just from one day to the next, we were like, had no idea where, like what was happening. Um, we had invested a decade of work into the community building. Um, our, you know, our closest friends were in this community. Our relationships were here, but because of a political struggle, drama, um, I think fear of, you know, whatever, lack of self-esteem, whatever it was, this happened and it was hell and I can't go into many details about it, but it was real hell. Wow. Um, something we never expected ever, you know, we were, we were just like really working so hard. I mean, during the pandemic, he was the only one working, burying people when everyone else was hiding in their houses. He was the one, you know, really holding on to the community together. Um, and it was something we never expected. So, I mean, there were, it was definitely a difficult workplace. It was, you know, there were definitely, there was toxicity, but we just always powered through and smiled our way through and just swallowed everything and went forward. And when this all happened, it was total hell. My life became consumed by, I had to take my children out of the school because they were in the school there. Um, overnight, I had to find a new school for them. We didn't know what we were doing ourselves personally, like, you know, in terms of community. Um, our lives were lawyers, nonstop, threats, tabloid reporters, wow. um, people were devastating. Wow, so intrusive also. It was like violating. It was, it was really one of the most horrific experiences I've ever gone through. Um, and how did you get through that? And I'm pregnant, right, at that time. So like, I'm already feeling very vulnerable. Um, and there were just, I don't know how I got through it. Um, Amuna was really hard for me at that moment because I was just sort of like, my whole life just fell apart. Um, and it was in public, 
and and there was you know there were betrayals and there were disappointments and all of the things the secret life of a Robinson like literally on steroids and in the New York Times <laughs> wow oh my goodness and my point is just that going through this struggle was extremely hard in the moment but can I take a break one second oh, yeah please? sure please well, I imagine that yeah right wow even yeah, for sure like even on a person even just on a on a level of of that's like so stressful in general but like in, a, in the public eyes like takes it like up so for many sure. notches like in the public eye like people you know who's literally his mother you know their mothers he buried during the pandemic alone digging the grave while holding his phone to show everyone on zoom like that level of sacrifice and full like just full giving of oneself like every moment of our life was community yeah. just suddenly like you don't know what hit you um and it's a much more complicated story but the point is that going through that hell um i felt like i understood the story of kriyat yamsov you know when you're going like when you're enslaved in mitzrayim when you're literally going through a really difficult time but you're just you're enslaved and you just do your job and then you have to go through this torrential water and you don't know what's going to be on the other side but you have to go through it and it's terrifying but you have to go through it in order to be free yeah and that's how i felt and i felt like you know so whatever however ever many months later seven months later now we are we basically within two weeks we started our own minion and then we within a few months we incorporated our own shul and Baruch Hashem, we have a thriving community. With wow, family. that's incredible. Wow. It it's sounds like the story of like Shvira Sakhalim, the breaking of the vessels. Literally. The world to be created. Right. And Literally. it's very painful and it's very scary when you're going through it. Like, you you know, I feel your emotion as you're talking and the idea of the carpet just being pulled out from underneath you and not really knowing even you know where your income is going to come from not knowing what your community is and not knowing how you're going to push forward and it sounds like you know you say amuna was hard for you but even the fact that you're saying it's hard for you actually had amuna you know and that's pro that's what got you through it the the whole thing how it happened was so insane it was like we would look at each other and we'd be like it's just like it's yad hashem it's yad hashem we know it's yad hashem no. I just don't know what Hashem's plan is for me, you know, and now looking back, I can't say this is definitively what Hashem's plan is. I don't know if this is the Midbar or if this is the right area. Israel. I don't know yet what's the area. But I do feel like without a question, like Hashem wanted us out of there. Hashem wanted us to build and to do his job, to do the work he wants us to do that only we can do in a way that where we would be uninhibited and where we could really, really just be ourselves and be free and and, and do whatever we can for the Jewish community. And I think that realization of that, like this, like this had to be this way. It could not, what we, where we were before, it couldn't have continued. There was, there was too much ego, as you said, and there's too much, there's too much politics. And we didn't want to be involved in that. We wanted to just do our job. And, and now I, I see Hashem, I really do. And I, and I, it's, it was a very, very painful process. Um, like wow. I, I'm, t I'm sharing like a tip of the iceberg here. But it's, but I see Hashem and I see that, you know, Hashem had a plan and Hashem, I feel really his bracha with, you know, the community that we're building now. Um, 
and it's uh it's it's like a very very different life like we're living in a totally different planet now wow that's amazing honestly like obviously like you were sort of forced into the situation because yes he was let go and you were forced into the situation but I think it's like so much to be said it's such a lesson to learn you know often we could feel inhibited we could feel like a place is wrong for us but it's so scary to quit the job or um you know like get out of the relationship because it's like what's gonna be on the other end like this unknown like you know who who, what's if I end up alone or what's if I have no job what's if I'm gonna be homeless there's so many fears and so so many stories and in a way in a way you were blessed that it happened to you obviously it was very very challenging very horrifying but in a way it's like when Hashem wants you out of somewhere and you're not doing it yourself he puts all these things and in the moment it just feels horrendous like a big curse and then only, this is only something we could see in hindsight and I know it's a personal place too. And then you look at it and you're like, wow, like all of the pieces were like, I'm do, like, I'm here. Hashem put me here. You know? Destined for you exactly as they yeah. are meant to be. And it's amazing. And the, the really the hard, the challenging part, which is something I like, I'm always working on is even in the hard times, even in the challenge, even if we have to borrow strength from a, like our future self, it's like. I'm still good. I know Hashem is, 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 this is the hand of Hashem, you know, and, and Hashem wants good for me and it's all good. And Which is so it's hard. very hard. It's very hard. So hard. It's very hard to look, to be aware when you're going through that fog of that moment to see those signals from Hashem. Like that's, that I think is the challenge. I mean, there were moments where definitely there were certain incredible individuals to whom I will be forever indebted who stepped forward and had our backs and said, we're with you. We're with you. You're doing the right thing. We believe in you. And those, I felt like those were malachim from Hashem. Like really, like Hashem sent them to say, like to keep us moored because otherwise we were totally untethered, you know? Um, but definitely when you're, when you're going through it, 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 you're right. Zelda, what you were saying about like needing that, like Hashem sometimes literally like throws you out of a situation, you know? That was what it was because we would never have done that on our own. We were just not like, like that wasn't, we don't, you know, to start a breakaway, you know, shul, that's what people call it. We don't see it as that, but to do such a thing is like a very, very, especially in that Bree side where we are, like, that's not a, you know, our style really. Um, this whole situation created this and, and God had a plan. Exactly. For sure. So Avital, to end this really powerful episode, how, what could you leave our listeners with? Something that they could take away, you know, really right now, wherever they are in their journey. Um, you know, since we're really trying to focus this episode and the season on uh, connecting more to our um, divine light, connecting more to Hashem, um, what could you what could you share uh, to end this to end this episode? Uh, I don't know if this is. I don't know what has already been said. So if I'm repeating something that someone already said, then tell me and I'll try to find something else. <laughs> but I think for me, um, it's so important that we spend time figuring out what speaks to us individually in a spiritual way. Meaning for some people, it's learning Torah. For some people, it's baking challah. Uh, for some people, what aspect of Torah? Is it Chumash? Is it Gemara, right? Is it Halacha? There are like different there are so many ways of accessing Hashem. Um, some people it's really, it's davening. For some people, it's not the daily davening, it's the Tehillim every day, right? Um, there, some people it's chesed. Um, some women, it's 
going to the mikvah, every person has their own thing where they say, this is when I feel godliness in my life. And to invest time into that, into figuring out, first of all, what is that thing? And figuring out how to bring that more into our daily life. I think that's, you know, that's essential. Sometimes we just like find ourselves going through the routine or the motions of, of religion without thinking through, like, does it speak to me? And I'm not saying don't do something that doesn't speak to you, but really trying to focus on the things that really speak to us as individuals and making duties on our own. That really like, where we feel like we have agency over our spirituality. Um, I think that's such an important part of religious adulthood, right? I feel like childhood for our youth, we have this, those of us blessed with the Jewish education, we have time to really explore many different avenues to Hashem. And as adults, we should already have a sense of self where we know, okay, this speaks to me and this speaks to me. How can I throw myself in more? Wow. wow. I love that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for I sharing that. that. I'm definitely going to incorporate that. It was so incredible to talk to you. Yeah, really. Thank you, for thank you so much for having me on. This was wonderful. Thank wow. you for giving your, of your time and such a nice treat to have this little guy. Yeah. He's so cute. <laughs> so cute. Have an amazing day and continue wow. sharing your light. You're amazing, Avital. So sweet, guys. This was so much fun. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. Bye. 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 Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Oh My God podcast. Make sure you hit subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform so you don't miss any of our upcoming interviews. If this episode spoke to you, please share it with someone you believe would love it just as much as you did and rate the podcast five stars so we can continue to make content like this for you. Do you have a question, suggestion, or interview request? Shoot us an email to omgpod at gmail.com. That's omgpod spelled O-H-E-M-G-E-E-P-O-D at gmail.com. We're so excited to hear what you think and cannot wait for you to tune in next week. Until then, shalom.